We asked for your questions about objectivist philosophy, and you submitted them. Answering your questions on philosophy is something that we're making a regular feature of this podcast. And today is the eighth installment of this series. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Sam Weaver, and I'm a junior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. And joining me today are Aaron Smith, fellow and instructor at ARI, and Mike Mazza, associate fellow at ARI. Welcome, Aaron and Mike. Hi, Sam. Hi. So today I'm going to be asking you some questions we've received on a few different topics, and I think we should jump right into it. So our first question is about whether Peter Keating can change at the end of the Fountainhead. And I should say the question itself contains some spoilers for the the story. If you haven't read the novel and you want to avoid spoilers, you might want to uh, tune out for the next uh, 15 minutes of the podcast. But uh, in in any case, the, the uh, the questioner asks the following. I am bothered by a scene in The Fountainhead, one that I believe has some relevance to my own search for understanding. The scene is when Peter Keating, apparently hoping to change the direction of his life, approaches Howard Rourke to show Rourke some paintings he had done. Both characters are clearly aware that the paintings do not showcase the talent Keating may once have been capable of. If I remember correctly, Howard responds by sadly shaking his head and Peter departs. Of course, the remainder of the book leaves little doubt that Peter did not go on to live a happy or fulfilling life. This scene has stuck with me for many years because it always seemed to be the moment in the book where Peter was closest to turning his life around and finding something better. My understanding has always been that Rourke's response was not meant to discourage Keating or return him to his unhappy path, but to acknowledge the reality that he was not the painter that he could have been. I've always read that scene as being about a man at a crossroads who sadly failed to change course from a disappointing life. My question is, at that point in his life, what should Keating have done? Yeah, that is, that is a very, I think, sad scene, an important scene in, in, the, in the novel. So Peter Keating is, uh, just if you haven't read the novel, Peter Keating is an architect. Uh, and he's one of the main foils for the main character, Howard Rourke, who's kind of the hero of the story. And they live their lives in very different ways. Uh, Howard Rourke is passionate about the career of architecture. Um, he pursues it with a, with a real passion and single-mindedness and rationality and independence and creativity um, that Keating doesn't have and doesn't exert. So Peter Keating is basically, he's a... He's intelligent, but he's basically a second-rate copier of traditional designs and approaches. And he never takes the time in his life to form his own real personal values. And so he's kind of, he's what Ayn Rand referred to as a second-hander. He's, he, he lives life second-hand. Other people's values stand in for his own. Other people's judgments and standards stand in for his own. He doesn't have any of his own standards or values. And in that way, he's kind of an empty character. Um, he lives his life in a sort of totally dependent way. Um, and whenever he has uh, something that is a personal value to him, like uh, his girlfriend, Katie, or to some extent, Rourke, he, he respects Rourke in a certain way, um, he betrays them uh, in the course of the novel uh, and in dramatic ways. 
And so he's, Keating has made a, a mess of his life and he's made a mess of his character. Um, so he gets to the point where, um, I mean, he, he, he succeeds in, uh, in his career through manipulation of other people and charm. He's getting people fired so he can advance through the organization. I mean, he's a really bad sort of person. Uh, now, when you get to, and he's really messed up his character, so he has no self-esteem. I mean, if, if in that passage, Rourke had said, um, these paintings are trash, Peter, give it up, which he doesn't, but that he just says it's too late. But he said, if these are trash, Keating would have just said, yeah, all right, okay. Like, he has no way of judging these things. He, he has no way of knowing. And if, if Rourke had said, um, you know, Peter, these show real talent. Uh, you should keep it up. I don't, he might get a little spike of, a half smile and but he he doesn't know what would be good about them or how to pursue anything <laughs> like his and that's it's one of the sad things about it i mean um there's a leonard peacock uh has in one of his podcasts uh he talks about this question because we do get asked this question a lot of, because people see the pathetic and sad state of peter keating at the end of the novel and they see him trying to, well, maybe I can go back to painting because he gave up painting as a young man uh, to please his mother because his mother thought architecture will be more, you know, prestigious or whatever. So he gives up what he loves to do something else because somebody else wants him to. And so he's trying to get back to painting. Um, but you don't get the sense at all, and there's no evidence from the novel, that Keating has the resources to call upon to make substantial change in his life and his character. Um, what values would motivate him? Um, he doesn't seem to really have any. Well, what self-esteem you would need? Because the first time somebody says, suppose he pursues painting and he draws a little landscape or something and somebody says, geez, this is horrible. There's the end of Peter. It's all over. He's like, yeah, I know. It confirms everything I thought about myself. I'm no good. And I, you know, it's, it, he doesn't have the self-esteem and the resources that would call on the amount of like, effort and energy and self-confidence to i think to pull himself out and to to pursue i mean let alone pursue art i mean you I mean what values is he going to project um so i mentioned the podcast and i didn't say anything but uh, leonard peacock has a podcast on this on his uh, website where he answers this question he gives his own answer to this question about why peter's sort of hopeless at the end so it's not just an issue of free will like well he could always you know theoretically right he could do it uh, I think it depends on how much time it would take for him to change his character, the knowledge it would take to figure out what was I doing wrong all my life, and then to try to change course and to be on a better path. And I can't see Peter at the end of that book having the resources to do it. I mean, that's what happened. There's a part of the, it's, there's a cause and effect story here. This is what he's built out of himself. His identity over time is now this is what you wound up with. This is the character you have. This is the ship you're floating on <laughs> or the airplane you're <laughs> riding on or whatever it is. It's like, this is, this is your life now. And this is what you've done to yourself. And I don't think he can, I don't see him as a, a, able to approve, uh, improve. Yeah, so you mentioned airplanes. Uh, the questioner gave some information about why he was asking this question. And uh, we won't give all of the the personal background that he gave, but the the basics are that uh, he was a pilot and he uh, wound up, he says, not being good enough to continue in that career and he had to make a change in his career. And he's wondering if he's now in a position like Keating 
um, and he's wondering about whether he, he should return to his former passion for flying and whether he, he even can do that at this point. Yeah, so there's a few things to say about the example. Um, so one is the way the questioner describes his situation. It doesn't sound to uh, me, and I think Aaron, you, you agree with this, that this the questioner is a Keating-like person. Um, so it's not like Keating had a uh, value-driven life and a passion for architecture. And then at some point he was like, eh, maybe it's time for something different. I'm going to be a painter. It's as Aaron was saying, he made a, he made a mess of himself over decades. Um, it sounds to me like the questioner was genuinely, you know, passionate about being a pilot. He was not doing, uh, he was not attempting to have a career in, in, uh, as a pilot based on some kind of second handedness sounds like a genuine value based, uh, interest in the career, but just because you um, really love something and want to excel as it, at it uh, doesn't mean you necessarily will, especially a career that has some kind of um, physical, physiological component. So even if I wanted to, I don't think I could be in the NBA, um, try as, uh, as, as much as I, I might. I don't think I have the uh, hand-eye coordination or um, or height, uh, uh, and you know, uh, it, so there's a question of why why couldn't the the questioner excel at at um, at being a pilot? Now, was it because you know you have he had vision issues, or maybe at the time he had some uh, personal issues that was interfering with his ability to be a good pilot? That's the sort of thing you might overcome. Um, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put myself in the situation of comparing myself to Keating in in this respect, uh, just because part of what's going on with Keating, as Aaron was saying, is that he's a, a become a certain sort of person who can't make this change without first like doing the meta change of becoming a different sort of person, and I think you have to take the it's too late um, uh, comment in that context so if you like we can all change for the better we have free will but it's it's not um magic uh so you know if you imagine what would it take for peter to become somebody who could actually have a value-driven life and career like that's probably a, a multi-year process uh, of diligent you know diligent self-correction and improvement it's not like um you know, your, your doctor says you need to get in shape. So you start going to the gym or something like it's, it's a, it's a real long-term change. And I think in the novel at this point, Keating's what in his forties, late forties, maybe. Um, so you can imagine, okay, well, he's got to take 10 years to change his character in a fundamental way. And then he can maybe if you start to project what it would actually look like there, there can be such a thing as like, yeah, you have free will, but it's too late. We're, we're all um, finite uh, beings. And especially now <clears throat> for the questioner's um, example of becoming a pilot. So he doesn't have to go through this whole like protracted character change, let's assume, but he still wants to know, can I go back to 
um, you know, to, to my career in aviation. And again, I think it, it depends on why you couldn't excel in the first place. So um, there are some careers where uh, it, there is such a thing as it being too late for physical reasons. Like if you, even if you're a great baseball player, if you're not pro by the time you're like 25, probably it's not, not gonna happen. Um, football players where their careers are over mid thirties, I think for most of them, some of them go a little longer, but so there are, there are careers that just have uh, physical constraints and limitations. On the other hand, um, the author of Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, I believe started writing those books in his late fifties, early sixties, something like that. So it's gonna depend on what exactly you wanna, you wanna uh, do. And um, in the case of, in this specific case, it's gonna depend, like I was saying, on why you couldn't excel in the, in the first place. Was it you had some physiological limitation? Well, uh, odds are it's prob that's probably not gotten better, but if it has, may maybe you can, you know, if you, I don't, I don't know too much about flying, but I know there are some physical qualifications, like if you're, <laughs> Um, if you're too, uh, if your sight is too poor, I'm, I'm sure you can't fly. Uh, um, if you, uh, you know, uh, there's probably some physical strength and in, involved in it. Um, so if those, if those things have improved, maybe give it another try. If there was some, like I mentioned, like a personal psychological reason you were, had too much anxiety in the cockpit, um, that's the kind of thing that maybe you could overcome or have overcome. So it would, uh, Aaron, looks like you want to add something. Go ahead. Yeah, no, ju I just want to say that um, uh, there's an issue of can you go back to being a pilot as a career versus can you go back to flying? And those, those are different things. I mean, if, you're, mm -hmm. if your physical condition is such that you, you, you shouldn't be in an airplane, that's different. But if it's, no, I'm probably not going to become like a commercial airline pilot or maybe you're doing some tourists, you know, uh, you know flights or something like that. You could do something outside of uh, whatever it was you were doing before, uh, but if you're not like physically fit or for otherwise not fit to to be, have that as a career, I mean, you could. But you could take flying lessons again, and you could go back, and you know maybe you could fly occasionally, and people do that. Um, they get the private pilot's license and do that, and just have the joy of flying without you know making it a career, because uh, you can't beat yourself up about it. If you tried it, and for whatever reasons, if just you made the effort and it, it didn't pan out. Uh, if it's you're not able to do it anymore, I wouldn't beat yourself up about that. But um, and one thing I wanted to say is, so the questioner uh, was asking a question about you know going back to flying as a career, but um, but just take a step back. I mean, the question is, when can you pronounce it too late to make a major change in your life? And that's kind of the more abstract thing. And Keating, his motor is dead. So I don't think he can, I don't think he's gonna go anywhere. But I think for most of us, our motor isn't dead, but there is a real issue of uh, change. I don't know how old the questioner is, but uh, if it's, suppose he's 40, you know, 45, I don't know, I don't know. But uh, um, it can be difficult to make a major change. Uh, I mean, people make career changes all the time. So it's also not, it's not some kind of unprecedented thing. Uh, and yet that involves risk, you know, because you, you often have to leave the current job you have or the salary you're getting or whatever and step into, to some extent, the unknown. Um, 
you know, and it may take years for it to be profitable and you don't really know whether it's going to pan out or not. So there is a risk and a kind of a self-confidence that one needs to do it. Um, but if it, it's, and there are ways in which you can pursue these things in limited ways before making a total leap, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, so I would say if you, if you haven't, if you don't see yourself as look, I've wrecked my character or my character's messed up in important ways. And the, really just the issue is I just wasn't very good at it. I didn't have the skills required. Um, move on to something else. And, or, but if there are ways you can get back to something that you love, whether it's as a career or not as a career, just as a hobby, um, you know, that's another way in which you could build that back into your life without having to make this kind of major change. And I hope that's helpful. Yeah, one, one uh, maybe final point. So if, if you really love, there's a question of what do you really love about flying? Do you, do you just love aviation and airplanes and going fast and that kind of thing? Maybe you can't be a pilot, but maybe you can still work in the airline industry or um, you know, in some capacity for uh, an, air, an aerotech, comp an aerospace company. Um, that's still a way to be around and involved in doing something you love without actually you know, being in the cockpit. So it, it might be worth as part of just thinking about, you know, uh, I left my former passion. Um, the questioner has a career now that doesn't seem to be related at all to, uh, to, to flying. Uh, maybe there's a way you can take what you're doing now and uh, merge it with your, with your, uh, love of aviation. So. Yeah, and last point is just, but there is something to the idea, I think of it being too late for someone at some point. And I think Keating is a good example of that one, um, of what that looks like to be at the end of your resources um, and just you don't have the spark anymore. Um, so it's a cautionary tale as well. I can understand that this question could kind of come up for somebody who sort of thinks about their life in terms of they have uh, this one thing that was really their passion and they, for maybe physical reasons, maybe some other reasons that, that you've mentioned, they, they couldn't do it and that being really disheartening. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this idea of like, I've lost my passion and uh, I don't know what to do with myself if I can't pursue that? Yeah, yeah. I think both of us, Aaron and I, would want to take issue with there being like your true calling that's uh, set down by God or, or uh, I don't know, happenstance or something that's not a product of your own chosen values. Um, there, there is such a thing as uh, having one passion at one stage of your life and having a different passion at a different stage of your life it's possible to change what really motivates you and drives you and um there's also the issue of how narrow you conceive of your passion so um my uh, go-to example for this is like uh, sherlock holmes really likes solving uh criminal mysteries so what does he like does he about that does he like the problem solving does he like the um the pursuit of justice for the victims. There's a number of things you might get out of that kind of um, career. And 
uh, you can, if what you really like is solving puzzles, problems, mysteries, there's other ways you can, you can pursue that than like literally being a detective. You could be a, a doctor and solve people's medical problems, like the character house who is based off um, Sherlock Holmes. So there's, there's a number of, you know, there, you have to be uh, flexible both within like how you conceive of your, your extant passions and then also you shouldn't think like you're necessarily welded or uh, to a particular one. So. Yeah, and there's such a thing as, as, as growth and learning. So there are things that uh, now, I, uh, like when I was younger, I, I don't think I would have thought that would be interesting as a career. But now uh, growing up with more, the more I know, the more I have delved into certain kind of things, I could say, yeah, I could imagine a career like that and becoming invested in it. So there's this, there's more than one value. And sometimes you have to actually go out there and experiment and look for it. Um, yeah. So let's turn now to another question about uh, another kind of question about change over time. Uh, this is a question of asking, can you explain the ship of Theseus thought experiment? And the questioner elaborates, a classic philosophical problem is the ship of Theseus. If over time a ship's parts are replaced until no original parts remain, is it still the same ship? What if its parts change in function rather than just being replaced? And what about people? As a person grows and changes, does he still remain the same person? More generally, what does identity mean over time? So this is a question uh, or a thought experiment that I think part of thinking through is going to be thinking through why anything like this um, matters. I, th I think we should, part of our thinking through this should be taking issue with what exactly is there worth uh, thinking through. So if, when you pose this question, the, uh, it's usually, is it the same ship or is it identical over time? You have to be careful about what exactly you're asking. So if what you mean is, is it in every way identical at one, you know, the, the ship gets a new sale um, on Tuesday, uh, is it the same in every respect as it was on Monday? Well, if that's what you're asking, clearly the answer is no, because it has a new sale. But if what you mean is um, something more like, uh, is there a continuity of its, is there some continuity of its identity from one moment um, to the next, not that each time you shift something out, it's like a, a whole new thing. Then I think there are uh, ways in which that's a, um, a real uh, question that's worth, um, that's worth asking. So two, two thoughts before, uh, uh, before I turn it to, to you, Aaron. So the first is that it's, it's helpful to think about context in which the answer to this really does um, matter. Like, is it the same ship today as it was yesterday? So one, um, one context might be is if you uh, really care about it, it's, um, um, uh, it's original originality being in the original condition. Um, I, I can't remember what it's a, the, the word I'm looking for, but that it's literally this. So it's, it's valuable to you that it's literally the same thing and the same piece that it was at some earlier point. 
So you th might think of like a collector. Um, <laughs> there's a, a show I watch sometimes about a pawn shop and somebody will bring in like a sword, samurai sword from 16th century Japan and they look at it and they say, oh, if this was all original parts, it'd be worth, you know, a million dollars. But it, it, here's the, the handles made of cheap plastic. It's the original blade, but somebody replaced this part and that affects the value. So it's, it's important to you that, um, that the parts are, uh, are original and you can say, yeah, it's, it's, it has original parts, but it's not the original uh, sword. So something's, uh, something significant has changed about its identity. Um, the other is the other point I wanted to raise is that I think the real, the, like the most interesting um, reason to ask this question has to do with personal identity, like like we were talking about uh, in the previous question. Are you the same person? In what respects can something happen to you where it really is meaningful? That no, you're a different person. Like okay, same body, but there's something like fundamentally, essentially different about this. Uh, person is that possible and there's more um fantastic versions of this involving like kind of science fictiony uh, examples that maybe someday in the future will be worth talking about but it's those personal identity questions that are that are the the cash value i think most of the cash value to this question and there i think it's just a suggestion about thinking this through there's a difference between a ship and a person um, there's a difference res with respect to like the sort of thing it is. So a ship is a, a physical, like it's a stuff, is a thing. Whereas a, a person, a life is a, we're talking about the process, the evolution, the, uh, it, it's in a different, um, it's a different type of thing. It's a, it's an, it's a process, not a, not a, not a um, material uh, substance. And I don't think we should take it for granted that exactly everything we say about identity and change over time is going to translate from one to the other. Um, in, uh, in, the, in the case of something like a person or a process, I think con continuity uh, is, is significant. So if, you, if your life process literally stops and then somehow it jump starts again, like a year later, like if that, if that were to happen, that would be, there's a real way, that's a different process. That's it. Um, where, but is there's no issue like that with um, physical substances. So if it's destroyed, it's just, just destroyed. Um, Aaron, I, I know you have something you wanted to say uh, here. Yeah, I wanted to say a couple of things. One, one was just methodolo methodological. So uh, often what happens in these kinds of examples and the ship of Theseus is not the only example of this or a number of different related kind of things where the question is, is it same or different? So we've got two categories, same or different. And it pushes you, what seems paradoxical about it is if you replace one plank on the ship of Theseus, is it the same or different? Come on, go ahead, Mike, tell me the same or different. And you're asked to choose between, well, it's, <laughs> The answer is it's the same in some respects and it's different in other respects. That's all. It, 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 there's no, I don't think that's a deep issue. Or five planks or 10 planks. Okay, well, it, it's the ship of Theseus, but it has 10 replacement planks. I mean, part of the change is part of the identity. So it's not that how can you have identity across time? The change is part of its identity. You know, so it's because um, another aspect of this is. What if you took all the original planks that you had pulled off because they were rotting, let's say, of the original ship, 
and you reassembled them into a reconstituted original ship. So is that the same ship of Theseus? Well, it's the ship of Theseus reconstituted. It's a rebuilt ship of Theseus. I don't know, what do you want, right? <laughs> so, it's, so part of the change or the results of the change become part of its identity. So it's not identical to the ship that Theseus allegedly, right? He's a kind of a mythical founder, king of Athens and so on. But um, it wouldn't be that in its new state, of course not, but it's the same original materials now reconstituted again, but that's part of its identity. So it's not to get sucked into it's one or the other. I mean, there are other things. Is like, how many whiskers makes a beard? Well, well, if I've got five whiskers or I've got half a beard, it's starting to grow in, but it's not really much of a beard yet. It's like, well, you've got the beginnings of a beard. It's not do you have a beard or no, and where's the, the dividing line? Because it's also how many planks can you remove and it's still the same one? Well, I mean, then you have a continuity issue and then it's like, there's no exact line place to draw the line. Um, but you know, it's 50% it's new, 50% original. So it's like, I've got a neighbor who's got this Jeep that he keeps kind of pimping out. <laughs> he's like replacing the wheels and replacing the suspension. And now he's got the roll bar. And it just every, after at some point, it's like the, the Jeep of Theseus, you know, it's, it's like, that isn't even a Jeep anymore, man. You know, he's got a Ford engine. I don't know, just at some point it's like, it's not even a Jeep. Um, but um, yeah, but so I wanted to say something about the personal identity thing because, uh, you know, Mike, you mentioned like, I mean, there is people, so life is a process, you know, and for a living organism, there's a period of uh, early kind of development and maturation, and then you sort of lose your faculties or whatever it is, you sort of decline and die. So part of the identity of a living organism is that is, it is in, it is in process. It's, it's something that undergoes change. That's part of its identity is to change over time. And you can, there is a sense in which, um, like you can come back from war, a very different person. Now, it's not like you got replaced with somebody else and you've been substituted with a, you know, a, a, an imposter or something. It, you're the same person in the sense that there's a continuity of consciousness. Um, so it's the same you that, in effect, that it's the same person, it's the same consciousness, it's the same individual who, you know, did such and such in high school and was in the war and came home now lives in New Jersey or whatever it is. It's, it's the same person. But there is a respect in which, you know, somebody says he came back a different man. You know, in other words, there's a substantial change in their psychology, in their outlook on life, in the way they face life, maybe in their values or their self-esteem or whatever it is, where the change is really substantial. And you say, I don't recognize that person anymore. Like he used to be kind of fun loving and outgoing and confident. And now he's more interiorized or however you put it um doesn't want to socialize it just he's become in important ways different but again it's not so you have your um there's a continuity over time and there's also change over time so he still probably remembers you know what what his life used to be like and it's you know it's so there's a consciousness uh, consciousness memory and so on all of that creates a continuity um but it doesn't mean it's some sort of static identity uh, so that you can change in substantive and important ways and there is a real respect in which a different person is, is there because your personality has changed substantially yeah i think i think that last point aaron is probably behind the feel that there's something like mysterious or, or problematic about the thought experiment but it's if you have a conception of like 
something's identity is a static thing in a moment. And here's, here's some thought experiment where that seems not the case because you, is it Monday? It's that's the static identity is Monday, no sale. And the Tuesday it's now it's got a sale and, but identity is the static thing. So there's some big puzzle. But if, if you if you allow that something's identity can be that it's changing, uh, which is the right the right way to think about identity, identity, then it's not there's not really a puzzle here or a problem here. There's more like some question about how does that work for different sorts of things. Um, how does how do we understand that uh, going through a process of change is part of the identity of a of a of like an entity or versus a person or versus some kind of uh, action or process. Um, those are just questions like how do we understand that? Um, so the example you gave, you might uh, you might be interested in that um, from a like uh, a question of moral responsibility. So are you the same person uh, at eighty as you were when you did something? Um, you know, criminal, say when you were 20. So are you enough of the, are you the same enough person that it makes sense to hold that 80 year old responsible? And you we typically think that, yeah, you are, but maybe you might raise the question, like, is that, is that really true? Um, if you're talking about long enough time spans. Uh, so I, not, not to imply what are the other answers to that question, just that this is the sort of question that where where the ship of Theseus thought experiment might have some um, actual actual cash value, where it's not just a philosophy classroom kind of full full exercise. Yeah, and I think that the way in which it gets uh, used. I mean, I so well, I, I, I we both have PhDs in philosophy, so we spent a long time in philosophy classrooms. Um, this one actually never came up. I mean, I knew of it, but it never came up in one of my classes. But what often uh, what's often paradoxical about it, I think, is just this idea: it's one or the other; it's the same or it's not the same, and then it's then it's then it seems to be problematic or paradoxical or puzzling. Uh, that's the importance, I think, of the methodological thing. Um, but yeah, uh, also the identity over time. I mean, going back to Peter Keating, um, um, your identity as a person is shaped over time, over a long period of time. Was Peter Keating the same person when he was 12 that he was then when he's in his 40s? Well, I mean, it's Peter Keating. It's the same continuity that there's a person there, but uh, your identity is built across time as well. So it's also not your identity or your character, if you think about it that way, your personal identity. Um, that changes over time too, but that's part of the nature of personal identity is that it changes over time and that it's affected by one's choices and so on. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably all I have to say about the ship of Theseus, I mean, because there's all sorts of directions you could take that. But, yeah. I had the ship of Theseus in one of the first undergraduate philosophy classes I took, so I can attest to it being a pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty widespread. Yeah. Um, Not sure it starts people off with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's usually what they do in philosophy well, class. They start you off by yeah. confusing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's one way people yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's turn to uh, to another question on a different topic now. Uh, this question asks, are some forms of wealth creation immoral? I absolutely agree with wealth creation being an admirable thing. 
in the context of a free market with no coercion, it's profoundly moral. In a world where heroin was legal, would one be able to fully feel proud of producing or distributing a drug that causes so much damage? Are there forms of wealth creation that, while voluntary and free of fraud or coercion, are still immoral? Um, sure, I would say. I don't, I don't think it's true that just because a, some kind of a transaction is uh, voluntary that it's necessarily moral. I don't, I don't see any reason why anyone would equate those two. Um, but I mean, you'd have to ask is what you're, is what you're creating or offering is, is it really a genuine value? So is what you're creating or offering as a trade, uh, uh, is it a genuine value? Even if it's something that might be abused, like, I don't know, alcohol or something like that, it is a value and yet people abuse it. And yet, so there are certain harms to it. Um, or, you know, is what you're peddling pure poison, which is basically, I think, how the questioner thinks about heroin. I don't know enough about heroin to say it's, there's no legitimate use for it or whether it's medical or I don't know. Uh, but the way it's the way it's set up in the question is that this sort of stuff is super dangerous. It's basically poison um, and you're making money off it. Is that moral? Um, no, not if you know that that's what it is. This is this is pure, pure destruction, and uh, you're peddling to, you're kind of pandering to people's uh, ignorance or uh, irrationality. Uh, no, I don't think that's moral. Like, what would why why would you do? Why would a rational person want to go around uh, rather than selling and trading values, legitimate values, going around selling destruction? No, I mean, there's no way to put that as moral. Um, similarly, are you? Are you deliberately pandering toward people's uh, vices, irrationality, ignorance, and so on? I mean, think about uh, in going back to the Fountainhead, we had Peter Keating, but what about Gail Winant? I mean, so Gail Winant is a publisher, is a, like a newspaper publisher, and uh, he's pandering to people's vices, irrationality, and so on. He gives them what they want. It's all garbage, <laughs> you know? It's like a kind of yellow journalism. What do they call it? Yellow journalism? Kind of a cheap rag you know mm -hmm. and he doesn't think that what he's offering is a value he thinks well the way to get along in the world is to have power over other people so i'll give these idiots all what they want all this junk that they seem to consume and want i'll give them that and then i'll get rich off it but is he producing a value no not in his own mind he's like no i don't think this is a value this is junk and i'm and and the people who consume it are irrational and stupid and so is, you know, he can get wealthy doing that. Is that moral? No, I mean, it's not moral, not because you violated some altruist standard. I mean, it's, it's immoral because it, it's ruining his self-esteem. It's undermining his ability to produce the kinds of values um, that he can be proud of, that he can think are legitimate, um, let alone, uh, I don't know, the. Yeah, I think it's the, really the failure to offer a value and to know that basically what I'm doing is is uh, pandering to people's irrationality and like that's not, I mean, that's not uh, moral or, it, you know, it's not in your interest. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, I think the way to think about trade in terms of morality is it's not just that it's voluntary, it's uncoerced, but that you are offering a value, something that you see as a value and trade for something that uh, um, 
someone else needs like, I mean, someone else can legitimately see this as a value. Like I know what I'm offering is a value and I'm trading it for something that I think of as a value. So I'm trying to enhance my life by getting something that I want um, by trading an actual value to someone else, not selling them uh, or trying to trick them or manipulate them or sell them something I know is just going to hurt them. Um, you know, I mean, part of the wealth creation is the production and then part of it is the profit that you make from the trade. And so part of building wealth in a moral way is you're, you're offering uh, values in a way that you profit from it. And you can build that profit over time. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's what I would say to that. Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, with this question, I, I want to take issue with the, so the, the question says, are there forms of wealth or for, are there some forms of wealth are some forms of wealth creation immoral? Are there, are there forms of wealth creation that while voluntary and free are still immoral? So let's take, like in, in the case of heroin, peddling, uh, poison, I wanna take issue with that being wealth creation. So it's, it's certainly true that you could, by doing that, accumulate material goods. Um, but that doesn't imply that it's a, you've created wealth. Um, as Aaron was, Aaron, you were saying, uh, you have to be concerned with whether you're adding value to another person's life and trade. So if, if what you're doing is you're knowingly giving somebody poison and they're you know, giving you stuff in return, like stuff that's not poison in return, money, uh, whatever. This is what exactly have you created in that, in that scenario? So it's like the, the net product of a trade is positive for both parties. Um, but if you're engaged in exchange where one person's clearly losing, so they're taking, uh, they're taking poison from you and you're getting their money, that's a, uh, not a creative act, it's a destructive act because they're worse off for the, for the exchange and now you have their wealth, which you're gonna to use to what? Further spread destruction, um, sell more heroin. Uh, so I, I don't think it's right to think of this kind of example as wealth creation. Like it's, is, is, are there certain forms of wealth creation which are immoral? Um, I think the answer to that's no, because I don't think of the, at least if this is the kind of example you have in mind, I don't think of this as a wealth creation example. Um, it's certainly an exchange in which one party accumulates more than they had to begin with, but is there a net creation? No, I don't think so. I think there's a, a uh, destructive redistribution of pre-existing wealth. Um, yeah, a couple of things to look at, I think, on this are in, um, what is this book, uh, Why Businessmen Need Philosophy? There's a, an essay in there that it, uh, by Ayn Rand called uh, The Money-Making Personality. Uh, and it talks about someone who acquires money versus somebody who makes money. Uh, and that's worth reading in this regard. Um, and also the... Um, the speech that Francisco D'Anconia gives in Atlas Shrugged. Uh, I think that's on our website. What was that called? The Moral Meaning of Money? I don't remember what it was called. The Meaning of Money, I think it was called. Meaning of Money. 
Yeah, it's also in for the new intellectual, which is a kind of a collection. That's of, where it gets the title from. Yeah. Major. Yeah. Okay. Good. Major speeches yeah. and passages from Ayn Rand's novels, but both of those are worth looking at to get a perspective on what it means to make money, what it means to create wealth, to bring new values into existence versus engage in destructive exchanges that uh, put cash in the bank. Uh, they're, not, they're not the same things. I don't think you should think about them in the same kinds of ways. Um, but so for There's more a, on that, I would there, there is a um, misunderstanding, I think, of uh, at least at least of objectivism, but just people who advocate markets and trade in general, that any non-coercive act is is somehow good or at least at least you know moral, and and that's not um, that's not at least Ayn Rand's view. Um, I don't think that's the view of most of the kind of more free market people either. I think most most non-objectivists who advocate markets would also say that, yeah, you can have a voluntary exchange that's not moral. Um, so if if you're understanding Rand in a way that 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 uh, has her thinking that well, if it's two consenting parties, then they can do whatever, and and, and there's no moral issue. That's not her. That's not her view. Um, yeah, the, the non-aggression. Yeah, there's plenty no of things, it, 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 consenting adults do plenty of immoral things together. Uh, so. Yeah, let me take a two questions we got in from YouTube. Um, one is okay. someone because this was are you, are you peddling poison or 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 what you offer an illegitimate value? And one of the questions is uh, um, where does one draw the line uh, between what counts as it's a value versus it's poison or something? And mm -hmm. The person gives the example of Coca-Cola and junk food. He says the Coca-Cola and junk food is, are definitely not life enhancing. Well, I don't think that's true. Um, I disagree. I mean, Coca-Cola, um, I don't really drink <laughs> Coca-Cola, but um, it's fun. It's, uh, it, I used to drink it on road trips every once in a while, partly for the caffeine to kind of stay awake uh, and partly because it gives you some sugar. Uh, I'm no dietitian. Uh, but it's, I don't think of this as, oh, it's pure poison and it'll kill you and you shouldn't sell it. No, sell it and be smart with the way you consume it. If all you're drinking is Coca-Cola and you never drink water or something and you're just consuming tons and tons of sugar and it's causing problems for your health, it's like, don't be stupid. Be smart, be informed about the kinds of things you're doing. Similarly, junk food. What's junk food? You know, I mean, what do you mean like potato chips? Do you mean Doritos, Cheetos? I hate Cheetos, but it's sort of, what's junky about it it's well it maybe it tastes good or it's salty and it's fun and enjoyable in that way you while you while you're watching a movie or something um are you is that all you're eating you know it's like in other words it is it becoming a nutritional issue for you so i don't think there's anything wrong with uh selling the so-called twink or twinkies i hate twinkies too but uh, somebody likes a twinkie it's kind of like a little factory made sponge cake with a little cream filling or something um, yeah, if it's, if it's all you're eating and you're not eating in a healthy way, that's a problem. But if you have a Twinkie every once in a while, I don't know, what's the problem? So I, I wouldn't put those in the same category. Where do you draw the line? That's partly more of a scientific or medical or nutritional question. And also for yourself as somebody who's, suppose I'm in the business of marketing, I don't know, Twinkies or something, and I can make them, uh, I think if I thought that these things are super saturated with sugar. It's part of why people like them. And it's part of why they sell well. 
but I'm starting to feel more uncomfortable about just if, if in my own mind, I was thinking the sugar consumption that people engage in is just way too high. Can I make these both tasty and in my own mind, more nutritional, more healthy, more, I mean, not going to turn into some, you know, natural foods product or something, but it's just, can I make them a little bit more sort of happier with people consuming them? Yeah, I would, I would be concerned with doing that if, if I thought that, if I was the one running the business. Um, yeah. And somebody yeah, asked a question. Going about, a little, you go ahead. I was, I was going to say going a little further on that. Uh, do you think there are considerations for how you should approach your customers if you're selling something that where you you believe or you know it has it can be used in a dangerous way? I mean, you, alcohol is one you mentioned earlier where it it can it can be very harmful, but also there seem to be places cases where it's a, a value for someone. Um, and, and part of the issue that you all brought up earlier is that uh, you don't want to be sort of pandering to the irrationality of people. So does that have implications for how you should approach your customers if you're selling something like this? For sure. I mean, like if I if I knew uh, if I knew like I was selling an alcohol or cigarettes or whatever it is, and I knew that there are health problems if you use this too much or if you're pregnant you shouldn't use this or something i would want to inform my customers about that for sure like why wouldn't i i mean so if you're talking about morality you're talking about a rational businessman somebody who thinks about no if am i offering a value does the value have down downsides or side effects or something yeah i would want my customers to know that because i'd want them to use it appropriately i don't want to hurt people like why would i want to do that or to put cash in the bank or so you throw away morality completely. And it's like, that, that's not, that's irrational. Yeah. Um, somebody asked too about selling guns. Yeah, there are legitimate purposes for using guns. Um, do you want to issue them with safety guidelines? Yeah, if you think there are like safety issues with them, for sure. Uh, I don't, I don't, and somebody's uh, again, put the thing about heroin on YouTube. It's like, what about heroin? Is can it be used as a medicine? That's a medical question. I don't know, because if they're so is produ producing and selling heroin like inherently evil or something? Well, I would say, of course not. It depends on is there a legitimate use? Is there a legitimate value? Um, I don't know if there are medical uses of that. Uh, <laughs> what do I know? But yeah, we, uh, we, kind of, are, we kind of bought into the, the question's premise that the heroin is pure poison with no legitimate. Um, I think January, gen, uh, generally, I'm a little skeptical of claims about just about anything is pure poison. There's no legitimate like context in which you can use drugs, uh, junk food. Like you could take anything with a legitimate use and turn it into something that's being used immorally. Um, now, for something like heroin, maybe the legitimate uses are way more narrow than uh, the legitimate uses of potatoes, but I mean, you just eat nothing but potatoes your entire life. I mean, that's probably, <laughs> there's probably something going on there that's, that's morally questionable. All you want to eat is potatoes. Why, why are you so obsessed with potatoes? I, I did you that can, actually. Only potatoes when I was poor we just so There's questions there, Aaron. <laughs> 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 that's true i mean so we get a whole bunch of questions about all sorts of different things but i mean there is a principle uh involved here so somebody said well what about selling pornography what about selling this and that uh and it's like again the principle is um 
uh, is there a legitimate value to what you're selling uh, or offering um, that you know is actually legitimate in your own mind? Um, and is that what you're appealing to? The value is what you're appealing to when you're marketing it, or it's, um, yeah, like alcohol in moderation, you know, help you relax. I don't know, it's enjoyable at a party or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and then you're, you're marketing it in ways where you're trying to appeal to people just getting hammered all the time and or whatever it is you're trying to appeal to yeah. what's not, what's a disvalue, I think about it. Um, but again, you have to- They're clear, there clearly are such, such products, right? So like why, why produce, $5 a gallon whiskey. What, who does that appeal to? Um, like not people who actually- I don't know if I would quite draw the line there. Not that I think $5 a <laughs> gallon yeah, whiskey. Yeah, I, 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 I know been, what you're saying though. You're, I know, <laughs> like I used to see, uh, I worked for briefly at a convenience store when I was in, in college. And uh, you, you'd see the kind of, the, the, the condition of the people that come in to buy the Everclear. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Right. But again, I, it's, it, but it's, yeah, so get into all things, the specific products or something. And I think that's not exactly the direction uh, to go, yeah. but it's, you have to think is, is there a value to it? Do you understand what the value is? Are you marketing the actual value of the product? Are, you know, are you trying to appeal to people's irrationality? I mean, all of those questions are relevant. Um, you know, to thinking about what, what you're doing and whether it's more. Uh, yeah. Let's try to get to one more question. Uh, so our next question asks, uh, well, I'll, I'll just read the, the setup and then the question is, Ayn Rand holds that a government holds a monopoly on the use of force in a given society and that the primary purpose of government is to use that force only to defend nations police citizenry and adjudicate laws. Is it prop, part of the proper role of government to establish and enforce standards, regulations, and prescriptions around safety? For example, zoning regulations, licensing of architects, doctors, et cetera, aircraft regulations, workplace safety, et cetera. Is it the government's role to regulate all of these areas of life in the name of safety, order, et cetera? I think we should start by, I don't think all of those examples belong together. So there's a question of, should the government do anything concerning risk and safety when it comes to situations you voluntarily put yourself in? So you are, nobody makes you get on an airplane or go inside a building or go to a particular doctor. Um, in those cases, I think the answer is fairly straightforwardly no. Now, there is an issue involving the government at fraud. So if you present, present yourself as, I have a medical uh, degree from Harvard Medical School and uh, I spent uh, 10 years learning surgery at this top hospital uh, and none of that's true, you just, read a Wikipedia article about surgery and now you're offering your services to be like, that's, that's fraudulent. Um, but should there be uh, government standards, government regulations of that? I, I, I think clearly on Rand's view, no. 
Now, <clears throat> there's another class of things which I think is harder to think about, which is safety and risk involving the activities of other people that you yourself don't consent to. So what are, uh, what are some examples? So one is there's some industrial process at a factory it emits something into the atmosphere that then it gets just, you know, the winds take it all over the countryside and um, you're not consenting to having those particles uh, be in your, you know, your body, in your, in your vicinity, in your house. Um, I think there's some uh, things the government can say about that. It's just an issue of property rights and uh, individual rights. I mean, you don't want to be assaulted by chemicals from other people. Um, <clears throat> what exactly they should do and how they should, should work that out. I, I'm not really sure that that's a pure philosophical question. I think that's a combination of philosophy of law and then like the actual, so there's a specific chemical and what's the chemistry of that? And um, is there a, uh, an issue of how much of it you're exposed to? Um, so there's probably something for the government to do in those cases. Um, there's other cases of you're not emitting something, but the what you're doing is um, uh, has some high degree of danger. So I think like a fertilizer plant, um, fertilizer is highly explosive. There's a lot of it sitting around. So if there's like a fire at the plant and the whole plant explodes, there was a, a viral video of something like this maybe five, 10 years ago, some exploding fertilizer plant, I think it was in Waco, Texas, it's, it's enormous. Um, uh, obviously a danger. Uh, and, you know, if you have your house first on some piece of land and somebody builds a giant fertilizer factory next door, this is inherently a, puts you at risk. You didn't expose yourself to voluntarily. There's, there's, there has to be some, some issue of, uh, some threshold issue of how much risk you can expose other people to um, by your activities. Like everybody living their life exposes to other people to some degree of risk. So just like I can give somebody the flu or COVID. Um, now there's, gonna, there's other things you do which are way riskier that you have every right to do, um, but maybe you have to uh, establish that you're doing this to a certain degree of um, risk mitigation. Uh, again, I think there's, I'm not sure exactly what to say about that, but I, I think that's probably a, probably a, there's probably a role for government there. Uh, again, you'd have to know the specifics of any circumstance. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure there's already um, worked out in the law, a lot of good, uh, good ways to think about this, but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, Aaron. Yeah, I'll just uh, add a couple of points. Uh, so you, uh, you mentioned, um, or the questioner mentioned professional licensing. That's completely illegitimate, like 100% out. The idea that, I mean, I mean, there are private, uh, private uh, professional organizations uh, that certify people, or you can become a member if you meet certain standards. And there's no need for the government to do that, and it's it's wrong for them to do it. The idea that the government would set itself up as the knowledge standard for what counts as a, as a legitimate uh, practitioner of a profession. I mean, that's crazy. You don't need, first of all, you don't, you don't want the government doing that. You don't need the government to do that. It's a violation of the rights of individual practitioners. If I'm a masseuse or a hairdresser, 
uh, or uh, an accountant or like, I don't need the government to give, I don't need the government to give me permission to practice my trade. The government's role uh, for objectivism, the government's role is simply to protect individual rights. And so what they, part of what that involves is defining rights and protecting them and finding ways through law to establish the right kinds of legislation, the right kind of laws that would need to be in place to properly protect an individual's rights. But if I'm a, a hairdresser and I'm practicing my trade, <laughs> see how it could be? If I'm practicing my trade and I don't have a license from the state or a government, I'm not violating anyone's rights. Uh, aesthetically, maybe I'm not very good or something, but I'm not violating anyone's rights. Um, and same with an accountant. It's like, you can't know what a, an accountant is. Um, there's no knowledge there about what counts as an accountant. If, I, if, I'm, if, I'm, uh, if I'm practicing as an accountant and I have no license, but I'm offering a legitimate service, so I'm not engaged in fraud, then it's like, why do I need government permission and pay the government for licensing? That's a racket. Uh, and it's a, it's a violation of people's rights. I think the same thing is true when it comes to uh, zoning, occupational safety and hazard, FDA, FAA. I think all of that is the same thing. It's the government interfering in people's business and private practice uh, in advance of them um, uh, violating anyone's rights. It's like, here's what you're going to do, and here are your marching orders. I don't think any of that is relevant, but the cases that Mike raised, I think are relevant in the sense that you need to have a legal framework that addresses and enables the enforcement to address cases in which um, you have something that by its nature, almost at least by its nature, it's a threat. Um, and then there need to be uh, not a whole government alphabet soup of government regulatory agencies. What needs to be is um, the law requires that, for example, um, uh, your facility be, I mean, you can't violate other people's rights. So if you have a like a fertilizer factory or something and the, the material you work with on a regular basis is highly explosive, um, it's, you know, you need to, you need to make sure that uh, you have certain things in place what specific things you have in place for safety measures i don't think that's exactly for the government to determine because that's a technological issue that's a there's all sorts of business decisions and so it's but you need to have in place something so you're not violating people's rights you're not placing people objectively at risk now the case about the the parts you know the breathing factory stuff i mean part of living in a modern society is uh, there's a you interact with all sorts of things that you don't you know exactly consent to just you, you what you consent to is living in society and and that's well that involves uh, interaction with things but um you have to just define are someone's rights actually being violated and what kind of legal measures do you need to take in order to make sure that that doesn't happen or if they do happen they're redressed um but i don't think for that the solution is a, a regulatory state and Aaron, just for clarity's sake so we're not misunderstood when we're talking about no, there shouldn't be licenses, um, standards. Oh, yeah. You know, there shouldn't be government standards. There shouldn't be government um, certifications. And it's not to say there isn't a need for um, professionals in those fields to have some kind of professional organization that provides certification, qualifications, things like that. Our our position, and there are many such. You know, there's a. Um, and that's why people uh, seek personal them out. Right. 
personal trainer organizations that have, you know, boards of experts who know uh, diet and exercise science and they'll give a certification and things like that. It's not a government um, government institution. They work fairly well. So, And it's also not like it, people are just uh, stupid and they need the government to tell them. You go to your personal trainer and he's not very good. He's not very respectful. Doesn't seem to know his field. Uh, move on. You know, or you go to a doctor. I mean, how many times does this happen? You go to a doctor. They're not very curious. They're not very interested in your problems. They don't ask many questions. They just don't seem to be very competent in their field, even though they might have training. You move on. You know, it's another issue. There seems to be harming. seems to be less uh, curiosity about professional standards when there's government um, certifications. Then uh, there's a lot. You know. It uh, can be difficult finding good um, uh, diet and fitness advice, um, but people are more curious about like doing the work and what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, it forces you to be more investigative, more first-handed, yeah. more like, I wanted, like, oh, I don't know much about diet and Mike recommended somebody and Sam recommended somebody else. And so I'm kind of reading their stuff and it's like, do they seem to know what they're talking about? Where, where are they getting their knowledge? Do I, what do I think of that? even just as a layman um you but you but it puts you more in the driver's seat of i need to evaluate things it doesn't mean i need to be an expert in physics and medicine and, and aviation and but you need to do a little homework i think and i think having a culture in which one is expected to do that just like when you do business with somebody you're trying to you it's you have to think what do i think of them and what can i learn about them to deal with them versus i don't know they had a certification uh, I mean, that's, that's passivity uh, that, I mean, it should, you'll, life, life will punish you for that passivity. Well, we're about out of time, so I think we should up now. Uh, so first, we wanted to, uh, to mention some resources that are uh, relevant to the questions that we've discussed today and that you might find useful if you want to think further about some of the topics that came up. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, so these resources are relevant to the, the first question that we talked about with Peter Keating and the Fountainhead. Of course, the novel, The Fountainhead, if you want to think more about the character of Peter Keating and his life and what happens with him, the best place to go is to, to read or reread the novel. And of course, there's a lot more in there to enjoy and to think about. Uh, we have a, a link at einrand.org slash novels slash the hyphen fountainhead, I think, uh, which will uh, give you uh, some, some information about the novel if you don't know that much about it. Uh, the other resource for that question is the podcast by Dr. Leonard Peikoff that Aaron mentioned earlier. And we have a link for that at bit.ly slash Peikoff on Keating. Uh, and then on some of the, the other questions about, uh, about regulations, especially, we have, uh, we want to recommend uh, the book, Why Businessmen Need Philosophy, uh, which you can see at bit.ly slash business philosophy. You can learn about that book. Um, and also Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, at bit.ly slash capitalism ideal. There are essays in there that have to do with the issues of Ayn Rand's view of the role of government and regulations. And I think there, there are pieces about regulations and, and 
uh, licensing in the Why Businessmen Need Philosophy book as well. Uh, so those are some resources. Um, also want to mention uh, the uh, next podcast that we're doing. Uh, next week, uh, Mike will be on along with, I believe along with Ankar Gatte to talk about professional philosophers, unprofessional treatment of Ayn Rand. And that's the same time next Wednesday, same place. Uh, so we hope that you will uh, that you will tune in for that. Uh, also, we are going to be uh, on Clubhouse after this podcast is over, right after we finish up here. In fact, we are currently uh, live broadcasting this podcast on Clubhouse right now. So you may be listening in on Clubhouse if you are. Uh, we, Mike, Aaron, and I, I believe, will all join uh, in a few moments after the podcast wraps up, and we'll be able to uh, to answer follow up questions and, and continue the conversation for a little while about the topics that we discussed today. Um, and so, if you're on Clubhouse, stay tuned. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or an, another platform, uh, join us on on Clubhouse right after uh, right after this podcast. It's the Ayn Rand Club. Uh, also, uh, we are currently running a fundraising campaign on YouTube. So you can donate to the Ayn Rand Institute directly from YouTube. There's this, you can see on the, the, the screen, there's a box next to the video on YouTube with a donate button. Uh, we have a goal of raising $5,000 through this method this month. And uh, so we appreciate it. If you enjoy what we're doing, if you got something out of this podcast, we really appreciate your contributions to help us meet that goal. And we appreciate your contributions if you, if you contribute to the Institute through other avenues as well, of course. Uh, as usual, I'd like to uh, suggest that if you enjoyed this, if you got something out of it, uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel to get more content like this. And if you click the bell button, you will get notifications whenever we go live or when we have new content. Also, if you like the video and comment on YouTube, it will help boost the algorithm. So if you want to bring content like this to more people, to a broader audience, that those things definitely help, um, along with doing the same thing on Facebook as well. Um, liking uh, or commenting on, on Facebook helps too. And of course, sharing our, this video or anything that we, that we do that you enjoy with your friends or your followers on social media. Last point, uh, we have an email address for this podcast, newideal at einrand.org. If you have questions or comments or suggestions for topics we should cover on this podcast, please reach out to us at this email. Uh, we read every email that comes to us here. We respond to many of them. And sometimes we use topics that people suggest in podcasts. Uh, for one thing, Q&A podcasts like this, a lot of the questions that we bring up in these podcasts come to us at this email address. And we do these Q&A podcasts on a regular basis. So if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, uh, reach out at newideal at einrand.org. So thank you, Aaron and Mike, for, uh, for answering these questions today. Thank you everyone for tuning in and uh, see you in a few minutes on Clubhouse. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, 
and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.